0: The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this Palm Sunday. These are uh, serious times. For us for the world the globe you wake up this morning and read about brothers and sisters who are worshiping on another part of the world blown up during service in the morning many many people killed and murdered and uh, missiles bombing towns and people in Syria you got the leader of North Korea, Korea constantly threatening to blow somebody up or kill or attack some country. and It's just real serious time in the world now. It's a time to not be afraid, but to be aware and to pray. And hopefully at the end of today, you'll have an additional piece of faith that you can add to that. To help you not be afraid during these times. Sometimes Joy and I talk about it and you know we joke about it, but the Bible does not mention the United States of America anywhere. And so that's gotta make you wonder, you know, because it does mention a lot of other countries and then the return of Christ, but no mention of the United States. And how can that be? This is the greatest country in the whole world. The world will be destroyed by fire, the Bible says. And so it makes you think, doesn't it? It makes you wonder, what is the future for my children, for my family, for all of us? What's going to happen in the world? And I don't know. So I'm hoping that today would bring some faith and replace some of the fear that you have. I can't think of a better way to end this series on the pastoral epistles ending first Timothy on Palm Sunday because it matches so beautifully with Palm Sunday. As Jesus riding into Jerusalem, he's riding on a colt and on a donkey, and people are waving their branches and they're shouting praise and the glory to God in the highest. And nobody has a clue what's going on or what they're doing. Only one person there, and it was Jesus, knew what was happening. They were clueless. That crowd of worshipers, in a very short period of time, became a mob shouting for his death. And so here we are in 1 Timothy now, and Paul is knowing what's ahead for Timothy, and he's trying to prepare him for his future and what he sees is about to come upon Timothy. And so he gives in the last verses here verses 13 through 16, chapter 6 verses 13 through 16, Paul gives us six attributes of the majesty of God. And this is so incredibly important to our faith to understand this. Remember this from last week that you value what is important to you, right? And what is important to you, you value. Those things go hand in hand. What is valuable to me is also what is important to me. So your God is too small if your faith is boring. If the scriptures are boring and church is boring and worship is boring or it's flat and you're getting nothing out of it, it's because your God is too small. That's just it. You don't know him enough to be any different. And that's the danger of Palm Sunday, isn't it? That's our danger too, really. A grave, grave danger in the church today is that we would be that same crowd on Palm Sunday and we would wave the worship and oh Jesus, oh I love you and sing and all of that. And then when our trial hits, We change, and now we're cursing that God. How can you do this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Where have you been? If you were here, this wouldn't have happened. Why aren't you taking this away from me? And we become the cursing crowd just so quickly. If you don't know who your God is now in the sunshine, you will have no idea who he is in the darkness. You don't know what he can do. You don't know what he treasures, what's valuable to him. And if you don't know that, then you'll be crucifying that God that you have set up in your heart as a God who is unworthy of your pain. It's interesting to me how the trials of life have a way of refining. You know, it's that refiner's fire it causes it reveals our vain imaginations about god so your trials and your sufferings it reveals what you know about god that's what i'm saying we see what you know when you suffer it's revealed so let's take a look at this text and see if we can add some value to our faith this morning all right first timothy 6 let me read it starting in verse 13 i charge you in the presence of god who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords who alone has immortality, who, dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I so desperately want our church to see you as you are. And I know how critically important it is, Lord, that they... They know you, they see you, they understand you, they walk closely with you so that when their day of trouble comes, they won't fall apart, they won't curse you, they won't speak bad of your name, they won't complain or blame you for their troubles. I pray, Lord, that you would use me today somehow to do a miracle in the, in the hearts of your people today, somehow that they would see you as you are, and then they, their faith would grow as a result. And they'd be strong in their day of weakness. And I know, Lord, that I cannot do this on my own. It must be you. It's got to be the Holy Spirit who does it through me. So use me now, Lord, I pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul was very familiar with trials. He went through a ton of trials. And as a man of God, he understood that if you are a man or woman of God, then you will, in fact, suffer. Because Jesus suffered, and we are no greater than our master. We will also suffer in this life. And we do, and you know that. That's like, of course, yes, we all know that. Everybody knows that. In life, there is suffering. And so Paul wanted to help Timothy, empower him, to be able to handle what was coming. He could see that he was in for some difficult days. Paul had been in the ministry now for a number of years, and he's leaving Timothy at Ephesus. And it's a church that he founded himself. He started Ephesus. He knew the people there. He knew the problems. And he's saying, Timothy, here, you take this church. All the while knowing that Timothy was an outsider, that he was all alone when he had to confront the false teachers, let alone the people's sins. Here you have this young guy who's never been in ministry, has no authority. He's confronting these false teachers. They were looking down on him for being too young. His youthful zeal tended to make him combative and overly argumentative. His lack of experience put him at a further disadvantage when dealing with false doctrine. So the situation was fierce. It was going to be a heated battle, and he knew that Timothy would want to quit. He'd want to give up. He'd want to give in. He was desperate for encouragement, and he needed strength and faith to fight the enemy. But the Apostle Paul knew one important thing that every young pastor, every man of God, woman of God must know. And that is this. That knowing God and being confident in his character is what gives you the strength through any trial. Don't miss that, okay? Catch Catch it again. Ready? Knowing God. And confidence in his character is what gives us strength to face any trial. So I'm literally going to show you today through the Apostle Paul that no matter what happens to the United States of America, what happens in our world, we will not be in fear. We will be prepared. We will be okay. Because we know what to do. We know what's going on, we know how to handle ourselves in times of trial because God shows us that through First Timothy. J.B. Phillips, remember? Very famous, well-known pastor, uh, wrote the Phillips Bible, right? Yeah. He said this, How a person lives reflects what he really believes about God. A.W. Tozer said this, What comes out of our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What pops into your mind when you think about who is God? Tozer went on to say that he could literally predict with certainty the spiritual future of a man by what comes into his mind when he thinks of God. So your view of God, how you think about God, how you see him, what he's like, what he values, what he treasures, what's most important to him, what he demands, what he expects, what he won't do, what he will do, your view of all of that determines your future. Your destiny. What you think of God and what you know of him, what he is like, is the driving force of your life. It's the one thing that determines your future more than anything else. Do you know that the Bible compares our spiritual journey journey to pottery? Did you know that? The Bible actually... Makes these comparisons between our faith and our walk of faith and pottery. Jeremiah makes that comparison. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, Carol, that you'd be here and we'd be talking about this? Isaiah, Romans, all throughout the Bible, you see this comparison of our faith walk with pottery. Do you realize that they burn pottery? at a very high temperature, they put pottery in a furnace? What is God saying? Do you know that they can tell whether or not the pot is done by what sound it makes when they pull it out of the furnace? They pull it out of the furnace, and if it doesn't make the right sound, guess what? It goes right back in. If the fiery furnace of your life doesn't produce the right sound, guess what? (laughs) You're not done. There's more to come. Did your furnace of your life, the fiery furnace of your life, make you stronger in your faith or make you weaker? Did it burn up the faith that you had or did it leave you stronger i do know this it burns out all the impurities and gives the pottery great strength this intense heat and so god was saying to Paul, to timothy i want you to be ready i want you to be prepared for life and for ministry and so he gives this wonderful doxology, these six attributes of God. He describes God in six different ways, and it's a doxology. Doxology is not a big word. It's not a word we use in normal conversations. It's a Christian word. But I don't want you to have in your, whole, your mind the whole time that I'm talking about some sort of uncomfortable medical procedure or something like that. That's not what doxology means. It simply means this, a, a way to worship. It's a method of worshiping. That's all it means. So the six attributes. Here they are. We'll go through them quickly. One, the power of God. Two, the invincibility of God. Three, the blessedness of God. Four, the sovereignty of God. Five, the eternity of God. And six, the holiness of God. So I want to run through these quickly as we have time. The first one, power of God. Most people get this and they understand, yes, God is all-powerful. That's not difficult to accept. I mean, he's God. He created the world. So God is full of power. That's not where we have a problem. The problem isn't with whether or not God has power. The problem is with how he uses it. You see? That's when we have a problem. We don't like how he uses his power. Because if I was God and I had all that power, I would do things differently. And so would you, right? The first thing I would do is heal myself. Boom. Healed right there. Some money in the bank would help. You know, Bruce Almighty, you know? We would all do that. We'd take care of ourselves. We don't like the fact that God allows these painful things into our lives, all the while knowing that he could change the circumstances, but he doesn't. Why didn't you prevent my child from dying from leukemia? Why did you let that drunk driver kill my son? You have power. You could have stopped that. You could have made an angel hit the bumper and go off into the curb and everything would have been fine, but you didn't. You just stood back and watched it happen. You see, that's where the rub is, right? That's where the problem is. And there are literally a trillion different scenarios that we can come up with of our problem with how God uses his power. So let me try and help you understand it a little bit better. Because I think you can see in this text a description of how God uses his power. First of all, God uses his power to create. He's the only one who can. God's spoken word creates. He's creative in his speech. He speaks and it is reality. He has the ability and the power to take something that was nothing and make it the something it is. God's power is also used to protect his own. He protects us with his power. Psalm 37 verse 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. Again, this is Jesus talking in Matthew 10. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So it's worth a penny, nothing, and yet it's important to God. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Most people miss and and they don't understand what he's saying here and they think that this is about counting the hairs on your head. It's not about that, okay? That is absolutely trivial and stupid. God isn't up there counting people's hairs, okay? That's not what he means. He's simply making a statement here of how God's knowledge, his understanding of everything goes from the deepest, most powerful, beyond places of the universe, all the way down to the hairs on your head. And God knows it all, and He takes care of it all. Jesus is saying, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's a profound statement of His sovereignty. I wonder sometimes when Christians go through trials, if they really believe that at all. Because you'll hear them talk about their misery and their suffering, go on and on and on and on, never once mentioning God or faith or their faith. And you're, you walk away thinking to yourself, where was God in all of that? There was no mention of God, because in their mind, he is not there. He's gone. He's absent. There is no God. But we know that's not true, right? Acts 17 and 28, Paul declared this about God. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. I love that. You know, we used to sing a song like that. You guys remember that? In him we live and move. And have, okay, you don't remember? Make a joyful noise, sing it to the Lord. Tell them of your love. Yeah, forget you. (laughs) The greatest and perhaps the greatest sustaining power of God is that he can reverse death, which we will celebrate next Sunday. Jesus, our God, he can defeat death. Jesus rose from the grave. He raised people from the dead. He is eternal. You know, I was on a, in college, I was on a missions trip. I think I've shared this story before, but it fits here. And we were in the Philippines, and the National People's Army was at war with the Corazon Aquino, the president of the Philippines. A communist group fighting against a democratic group, and they were fighting in the area that we were at, and there was some people were killed, and it was bloody, and guys with machine guns, and so the team got really afraid. We were all going to die in the Philippines. I got all these nineteen-year-old kids, and this uh, Baptist pastor could see that we were gripped with fear, and he said. All right, come into my living room and sit. So we sat us all down on his couch, a couple chairs, and he looked at us and he said, Okay, what will happen if you are killed here on your missions trip? What if you die? What will happen? And we said, Well, we'll go to heaven. He said, Well, and then what? Well, it'll be awesome. We'll be with God and we got the point, then what are you afraid of? Because God said he would be with you, that nothing would touch you except by that which he would allow, Amen. and so what are you afraid of? Well, nothing now. Number two, he mentions the invincibility of God. This is important. All power and all authority has been placed under the feet of Jesus. He has total power and control over everything. Everything is under his authority. There is no power greater than God. And so it. It looks like it now, and it looks like now he's not all powerful, that he doesn't have everything under control, because things seem like they're out of control in your life, and that's what most people say. Where is God in this moment? But he is, he is there. He has it. One day, Jesus will make right all of these wrongs. He will bring together in perfect harmony, get this, the justice of God, and the grace of God. They'll come together in perfect harmony under his rule and reign on the earth. He will bring the final order of the universe. Jesus described this himself. It's just amazing. He said, and I quote Jesus here, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great authority and glory. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, all of the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. You see, it's because of God's character, I can trust Him in my trials. Right in the middle of your trials and your sufferings, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who said, they called out one day, and they said, if this be so, if my pain is not going to go away, if my daughter will never come home again, if my son turns his back on God and our family, if the bank is about to tank our home, you see, if this be so, we all have our so, we all have our thing." it's different for everybody. We're all facing some kind of mountain, some kind of threat, some kind of fiery furnace. He said if this be so, then our God whom we serve is out serves then our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. God is able to deliver us. He's all powerful. And he will deliver us from your hand. That's my confidence that God is going to be there for me and rescue me. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God will spare us. Our trust is in his character. He will spare us. He has the power. He can defeat your stupid fiery furnace. And we have confidence in that. But if he chooses not to, our confidence remains. We still put our faith in him. This is remarkable faith. Our God is invincible. Amen. Number three is the bless, blessedness of God. The blessedness of God. The Greek word used here means blessed or happy or content. So God is content. He is satisfied. He is at peace. He's fulfilled. There is no unhappiness, no anxiety. So our peace then cannot be based on our circumstances but that is what we base it on and Paul is telling Timothy don't do that Timothy don't base your peace on your circumstances base it on who God is his character his nature because he's perfect peace Sometimes what I, what I like to do is in dark, difficult moments, cry out to God through Psalm 46. Every Christian should memorize Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is fighting words, okay? That Psalm was given to us by God to be our sword To fight off the enemy, to fight the devil. You need this psalm in your heart. So memorize it, eat it up, get it in there. You gotta have it, okay? Verse one Our God, who is a very present help in time of need. Very present help in time of need. He hasn't left you, he hasn't abandoned you, he isn't not listening to you, he's not far off. He's present, he's present with you in this hard time that you're walking through. Therefore I will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, she shall not be moved God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Please, please, memorize this. Add it to your fighting verses. And when your day of trouble comes, as it did for Daniel in the lion's den, you can roar back at the devil, Psalm 46. Or you could ignore me, And fight the devil on your own strength. Good luck with that. We're running out of time quickly. We might not be able to get through, through all of these, but we'll see what happens. Number four is the sovereignty of God. God has no equal, no rivals, certainly not the devil. I mean, he created the devil. The devil is no threat to God in any way. No one can fully know him. No one is like him. And I think most Christians would agree with that until they suffer. Yeah, I'm okay with understanding all of this until I, have a suffer, I suffer, and then we have a problem now if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and always at peace, and always content, then does that mean he doesn't care about my pain? If he's living in this great joy, and wonderfulness, and peace, and this this great contentment, does that mean he doesn't care about what's going on with me? He doesn't see my suffering? See, it doesn't bother us until we suffer, and then we have a problem. I thought you loved me, God. I told you last week that the book of Job was written to explain suffering to the world. It's God's book on explaining suffering. If you're in a trial in your life currently, you'll want to study the book of Job. It's just amazing and powerful how You'll get to see the heart of God and how he responds to suffering. And if you're not in a trial right now, you should still read the book of Job and get ready for it and prepare and build up your faith. Some of the answers that God gives Job take faith. Some of them take great faith. Nobody said this was easy. Nobody said this was just... Simple, boom, got that on a weekend, right? Remember this: the book of Job shows us that the devil is a killer of faith. That's what he does. He's a eat, he's a faith eater. Isn't there like in the the Harry Potter movies? There's the the, the eater things. That's what the devil is. A death death eater, yeah. That's what the devil is. And he he's a sower of doubt. Right? In the garden. He's speaking to Adam and Eve, sowing doubt into their mind and unbelief. That's what he does. So let's just peek, just peek at this quickly. Job 1, Job chapter 1, it's right after the book of Psalms, verse 6. a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Are you kidding me? Have you considered my servant Job? Don't say that. What are you doing? How would you feel if God said, Oh, have you considered your servant Mike? What? Don't mention me. Go to somebody else. Don't, don't make it obvious. God's luring him into this thing. Isn't that cool? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord said a terrible thing to Satan. That's not in there, but that's how I see it. <laughs> Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he wiped out Job. (coughs) Killed all of his kids, killed all of his camels, all of his horses, all of his sheep, all of his goats, his servants. Literally nothing left. He's got his wife, who turned out to be a real piece of work, but his wife (laughs) and Job and the three or four servants that were left alive so they could come and tell him that all is gone. So here's this poor man. He's godly. He's righteous. He is not a bad man. He has compassion. He loves people. And now he has nothing. And you know what he says to God when he has nothing? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You see, we sin when we curse God. When we curse him and and yell at him and complain to him about our troubles, there's a big difference between praying about what's troubling you and just complaining. Right? You know the difference, and so does God. Complaining and murmuring and saying it's unfair and why are you doing this to me? I'm a good person. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a gangster. I'm a good person. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And so then it happens again. It happens again. Job chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There it is again. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason, that sentence disturbs me. It disturbs me. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, and all that the man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch the bone of his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So Satan is arguing, well, you didn't do enough the first time. You took away his stuff, and that's fine. People can endure that. But if you take away all of his stuff and then take away his health, he has nothing. Do that. He'll curse you. And so the Lord said, all right, go. Hit him with sickness and disease, but don't take his life. And he goes out and he does it. And here's Job sitting on this ash heap, scraping his sores with broken pottery. And the part that really disturbs me here is that God pulled the devil made me do it card. You see that? God said the devil made me do it. He said, you incited me. So God initiated this whole thing, told the devil he could do all of this, and now is blaming him for it? Does that sound fair? Yes. Yes. Is that right? Yes, it is right. Because he's sovereign. Do I understand how that works? I don't know. I don't understand it. But it's as clear as day. There's no hidden meanings here. This is written in English, you know, as well as Hebrew. <laughs> the devil caused the suffering, and then he was blamed for it. But all along, it was sanctioned by God. God could have said no to the devil, he could have said, yeah, No, devil, don't touch him, stay away. I've hedged him in and the devil wouldn't touch him. He would obey that. He has to obey. But God allowed the suffering. The devil was blamed for it and Job never finds out why until he gets to heaven. Why don't we stop right there because we're over time. These are heavy weighty things that we must wrestle with the attributes of God, of who God really is, not who you want him to be. Not the God that spares you from every trial, every hurt. The God that, you know, whenever you throw out a prayer, then he's going to give you what you ask for. That's not the God. That's not the real God. We've got to wrestle with these texts, and though we may not understand some of them, we must accept them by faith. I understand that our suffering makes us stronger. I I know that, right? You know that. So we understand the surface things, but beyond that, the why, that we don't know. We must take it by faith. I must reserve my judgment to the sovereignty of God and the comfort that one day all this will be made right. If you have this doxology in your heart, if it's inside of you, you will be ten times more prepared to face the trials in your life than all the other Christians you know. You'll be the one Christian on your whole block that is far more superior than all the other Christians just because you live out this dexology, these six characteristics about God. You know him to be this way, and it's true, and you walk in it, and you walk close to God. People will say, there's something different about that Christian because he walks with God. Nobody cares when you prosper. (laughs) I mean, Joy and I, we bought a new house this year. Actually, we bought it last year. And, you know, we put a lot into it. We saved for a lot of years to get the money to have the down payment and buy the home. And we were very happy with it and Hudson was at college, and so he kind of missed out on that whole thing. And so then he came back from college, came home, and, and Joyce said, well, what do you think of all this? Hudson, and he's like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> and you know what she said back to him? That is not the answer I was looking for. <laughs> you want him to be excited about what we're excited about and to value what we value right? That's what we were looking for. And so when you are in your heart aligned with who God really is, then you will have great strength when your day of testing comes. You will not be like everyone else who's fallen apart. You'll have strength. We got to end it with that, but You know, it's interesting to me that this has kind of been a theme of my preaching for the last seven years. You go back through these seven years, there have been a lot of these kinds of talks. So if you haven't figured it out by now, (laughs) you're a dunce. (laughs) I mean, come on. What is the problem, right? This church of all churches should be well acquainted with how to handle trials. I have tried my best to help you see to not not just talk about it but to live the example for you to see. That you can know Christ in the most intimate and wonderful way. You can have a joy that goes way beyond your circumstances. And you can live your life without any issues against God. It's a, great, it's a great life. So let's pray. Jesus, when I think about the suffering that's going on in the Middle East and different parts of the world... I think to myself, we we know, we have no idea what suffering is. We don't suffer. And yet suffering is suffering. It's the same regardless of where it is. So Lord, help us as your people to never ever complain, to never ever curse you To never doubt you, to not bring accusation against you, but to trust in your character, which is good. That no matter what happens to me, you're watching out for my good. To help me, to sustain me, and to bless me. Lord, help us to go away with that assurance today. In Jesus' name, amen.